out your scripture and open them to John chapter 12. Going to be looking at verses 12 through 19 today. And I do want to warn you ahead of time that I know that on the back, you note takers, there are three points, but there's going to be two points today. Two points. So those of you who come up to me and remind me afterwards, we're good, right? We're going to cover the third point next week. Pull a little Alistair Begg here as we look at verses 20 through 36 next week. So three sons were discussing a gift they had bought for their mother. The first had bought her a big house. The second had bought her a Mercedes with a driver. And the third knew that his mother loved the Bible, and so he bought her a parrot, which was specifically trained to recite Bible verses. All she had to do was suggest a reference, and the parrot would start reciting. The first son got a letter saying it was a very nice house, but it was a little too big and it took too much time to clean. The second son got a letter from the mother saying that the car was much too big for her and that the driver was a little rude. The third son, however, got a letter from the mother saying that you're the only son who understands me. Your two brothers gave me stuff I really don't care about. You're such a good son. Thank you so much. The chicken was delicious. (laughs) Misunderstandings, misinterpretation, missing the whole point. That's the point of our text today. Look with me at verse 12 in chapter 12. God's word says, the next day, a great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these, that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Father God, I pray that you will speak through me to your people today. Help me, Lord, to to get me out of the way and to you to step forth and speak truth to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to draw your attention to verse 16 there. At first, his disciples did not understand this. It goes on to say, only afterward did they really understand the full scope of what Jesus was doing here. His disciples, in other words, did not really know what was going on here. And from what we know the crowd is saying here, the crowd actually didn't know what was going on here. 
They wanted a warrior king. That's what the crowd wanted. They wanted a king to come and restore the borders of Israel. But Jesus was coming as a different kind of king. He was coming as a spiritual king. You can see this misunderstanding in what they're saying here and what they're doing. They, the crowds, it says there in verse 13, went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. This is translated some, in some Bibles as save or save us or rescue us. A, a, maybe a more literal translation is save us now. Save us now. That's what they were chanting. And they were waving these palm branches. And the palm branches were a nationalistic symbol. They became a nationalistic symbol 150 years earlier when Simon Maccabeus took back Jerusalem from the Greeks and liberated the Israel from the Greeks. And ever since then, they greeted him 150 years ago with waving palm branches, and that became a symbol of nationalistic pride, of victory, of wartime victory. So the crowd is crying out, save us now, and waving militaristic victory flags. The crowd was showing that they thought they were welcoming into Jerusalem a military king. A political king. A king who was going to rescue them from the oppression of the Roman Empire, just like Simon Maccabeus rescued them from the Greek oppression and occupation a king who would restore the borders, a king that would give them back their kingdom. That's what they were looking for. Give us our kingdom back. And what's Jesus' reaction to this? If you know your scripture, you know that in Luke, when he was entering in, he stopped and he wept, didn't he? He wept. He saw this and he wept. And it tells us there that he says, if you, talking about the crowds in Jerusalem, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, if only you had known, if only you had realized, if only you had understood what was going on here. See, Jesus realized that they misunderstood and that they were looking for something that he was not going to fulfill. He knew they didn't get it. He was coming not with a sword, but with peace. He was coming not to bring a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Jesus was coming to bring a spiritual kingdom. A little later on in John's Gospel, we we get this uh, fleshed out a little bit when he is before Pontius Pilate. And if you remember, Pontius Pilate was actually, I see him a little bit as trying to get at the truth here. And he asked them point blank, okay, you're up here, you're before me because the charge is you're going to lead insurrection. You're a king of the Jews coming to, to throw us out. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you coming to restore the kingdom, their kingdom? Are you coming to rescue them now? You remember what he says in response Point blank, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place, John 18, 36. In other words, the kingdom that he's bringing 
is not a physical kingdom. He's telling Pontius Pilate that. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom. Professor David Engelsma from Reformed Seminary in Michigan explains the kingdom of God is spiritual. It's a spiritual rule, a spiritual government. It affords spiritual benefits. It creates and occupies spiritual territory. It reflects spiritual glory. It creates spiritual citizenry. It's not fantastic, imaginary, or ghost-like, like Narnia's, like Lewis's Narnia, or Tolkien's Middle Earth, or Rowling's Hogwarts. It is a real kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus is king of is just as real as this physical kingdom that we inhabit now. It's just as real. But let me explain and expound. It has some differences. It has different rules. If you read the New Testament and, and what Jesus explains about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they're used rather interchangeably, you realize there's radically different rules to this kingdom. The first must be last, and the last will be first. You, you, you want to be a leader in my kingdom? Be a servant to all. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at how Jesus modeled that in the upper room when he washed the disciples' feet. You want, how do you relate to one another? You're to consider others better than yourself. You're to honor one another, our memory verse, honor one another above yourselves. So it has different rules. It also has a different timetable. It's not Hosanna now. It's not save us now, physically, politically, geographically. No, that's save for when he comes the second time. It has different benefits. The benefits of God's kingdom are, are humility and peace and perseverance and joy and love. It has different demands. Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, demands willing sacrifice. It demands denying yourself and taking up the cross and following Jesus. It demands loving your enemy. It demands going the extra mile. Jesus' kingdom has, has different freedoms. It has freedom from the bondage of sin, the chains of sin that we don't see, but that are there. You know that wonderful hymn, My Chains Fell Off. Walking out of the dungeon free. It has freedom from death. <laughs> death, where is your sting? Where's your victory? It isn't, it's gone. You go from life to life, Paul says. As a freedom, if you will accept it, from worry, from guilt. Ultimately, Jesus' Jesus's kingdom has a different geography. It's not a geography of the physical land. That's coming in the second coming. It's a geography of the heart, isn't it? That's the kingdom's geography. It's the heart. And the kingdom grows. Do you know how the kingdom grows? 
not by taking a cubit of land here or a mile here or taking that peninsula. The kingdom grows as we share Christ and people become, their, their hearts come, go from stone to flesh. Do you know how the kingdom of Christ grows? As he makes new citizens in this kingdom. It grows as people come to know Jesus as their Savior. Romans fourteen seventeen, Paul writes this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, he's saying through that, through that merism, it's not a physical thing, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual kingdom. And that's difficult for us to struggle with, isn't it? I mean, honestly, you know, we, we think physically. We think in this realm, don't we? Where so many times we are like the crowd crying out, Hosanna, save us now. We, in parts of our hearts, and maybe large parts of our hearts, we want a physical king, just like the Israelites in 1 Samuel 8. When they went to Samuel and said, you know, this, this theocracy that you've set up, yeah, that's really good, but give us a king. Give us a political king. We want to be like the nations. Give us that. A lot of times in our hearts, we're like the crowd. Save us now. Do something here now. We want Jesus to stop wars and genocides. We want Jesus to stop suffering and starvation. We do want Jesus to save us now. Stop the cheating. Stop the lying. Stop the injustices. Isn't that what's part of our hearts? And guys, that's not wrong. A changed heart, a regenerate heart, a heart of flesh and not stone should desire those things. And we should engage in those things. James 2 tells us, using the example of the poor, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, and does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by deeds, is dead. You can expand that principle here. Your heart should pant for those injustices to be just. God calls us to fight for those things. Our changed heart should compel us to do so. See, it's not wrong to desire those things. What's wrong is when we demand them of Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not wrong to desire those things and be engaged in those things. What's wrong is when we say, do it or else. We demand it from Jesus. We have to be careful to learn the lesson that this crowd teaches us. You realize this crowd teaches us a lesson. If you keep on reading in all the Gospels, those, that same crowd that was saying, save us now. You are our Savior. R- restore the kingdom. What were they doing a few days later? They weren't yelling, Hosanna. They were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. 
you know, if you don't give us our kingdom, if you don't give us our kingdom back, I really don't have much use for you. We've got to be careful about our hearts. When they realized he was not going to bring the physical kingdom, they weren't yelling Hosanna. Second misunderstanding is a variation on the same theme. It's not a wartime king that he was coming as, but a peaceful king. It's another misunderstanding that the crowd had. John mentions in uh, he mentions it here, but in all four Gospels, this is one of the few events that is, is put forth in all four Gospels, the triumphal entry. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, coming in on a donkey is a little bit like a visiting dignitary coming and driving up to the White House in a 1961 Lincoln Continental. You know, people would drive up and they'd look at it and go, okay, why isn't he coming in a limo or a Cadillac or something? Why in 1961 Lincoln Continental? But for people that know a little history, you realize that back in 1961, the Lincoln Continental was the political or the presidential vehicle. That was the presidential vehicle. We've lost perspective on that now, and that's kind of what's happening here. Here he is riding in on a donkey, and those with eyes to see, those that understand, realize that he is riding in on the Jewish royal animal. You look back in your Old Testament in 1 Samuel and in Judges, and you find that, that people of power rode donkeys. That was the animal of kingly position. And so Jesus is declaring his kingship here. But he's declaring it in a, in a nuanced way. And that's what John wants us to realize as he quotes Zechariah 9, 9 here. In verse 15, it says, Do not be afraid, O Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Here's where the great misunderstanding is found. The last half of Zechariah, verses, uh, chapters 9 through 14, there are two oracles or two prophecies. Chapters 9, 10, 11, and then another prophecy in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And in the first prophecy, chapter 9, 10, 11, is about wartime and judgment coming on the land. It tells of a nation being conquered. In fact, the first eight verses of chapter 9 is actually a prophetic future prophecy of Alexander the Great coming in some 300 years later. And conquering that land. And then wedged right after that wartime where you have all this, this bloodshed, where you have all the withering and taking of possessions and agony and fire, wedged right after that in, chapter, in verse 9, we have this little messianic prophecy that John plops right down here. A little prophetic note about what kind of king Israel is expecting. We read it in our public reading of Scripture today. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughters of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Then it goes on in verse 10 and says, I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He, the king who's coming, the Messiah, he will proclaim peace to the nations. See, what John is reminding the readers here is that Jesus was coming as a king, but he was coming as a peaceful king, as a king of peace. That's what the angels proclaimed at his birth. Do you remember that? The shepherds were there and the angels came and burst forth in song and they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. In other words, they're saying, this king that we're proclaiming is coming to bring peace. Beginning of his life and here at the end of his life. Not peace between nations, though. Not peace between Israel and Rome, but peace between man and God. And that was the misunderstanding. Peace between man and God. Michael Horton, professor of theology at Westminster Seminary, wrote this. I think I've read this to you before. God is, the gospel is not good instructions, not a good idea, not good advice, The gospel is an announcement of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. And what Jesus did on the cross was to offer to the human race peace toward God. The cross was really, if you will, an olive branch to mankind. Extending peace. Colossians 1.21 says... Once you were alienated from God, enemies with your mind. But now he has reconciled you by this physical body. The whole chapter of Romans 5 talks about this, kind of expounds on this peace with God. It says in verse 9, since you've now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath? Through him. For if, when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, the wrath of God, we're enemies of God. What the crowd didn't understand, what the disciples did not understand, and perhaps there are a few of you here today that don't understand this. Jesus came to make peace between man and God. Because the common thought today is that God isn't your enemy. But the Bible says that if you don't know Christ, he's your enemy. That's not something we like to talk about. It's not something that we like to to expound on. Without Jesus, God is not your friend. I think there are two common misunderstandings that woo people into a kind of a false sense of spiritual security. One we talk about here all the time. People are basically good. We hear that all the time in the culture. People are basically good. That our hearts are not deceitful above all things. That our motivations are pure as the driven snow. That sure, we make mistakes. 
But we really don't need the kind of radical, comprehensive forgiveness that we find in Jesus, that we hear in the gospel. People are basically good, but the second common misunderstanding is just as deadly. And that is that God is basically your friend. God's basically your friend. Most people believe that the default setting between you and God is friend, or at worst, neutral. But not your enemy. And these are two lies that woo us into that false sense of security. See, we want peace on our own terms, don't we? We want peace to be on what we do. As one writer put it, puts it, our trouble is we want peace without a prince. And that's true. That's the misunderstanding. The Bible puts forth over and over again that we need a prince, a prince of peace. And that's what we have in Jesus. That was what was declared at his birth. And that's what here is declared as he comes in six days before he dies. Romans 5.1 again says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. What kind of peace? Not a warm, fuzzy feeling, but ceasing of hostility between you and God. As former Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin put it so well, peace is not made with friends, peace is made with enemies. Peace with God, that's what Jesus came to secure for us. He came and lived a perfect life in order to become the perfect sacrifice so that he might be the perfect substitute in order to offer us perfect peace with God. That's the gospel that he came to accomplish. Listen to that again. He came and lived a perfect life in order to become the perfect sacrifice so that he might be the perfect substitute for you and me in order to offer us perfect peace with God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, and I'll close with this, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. The cross is an olive branch to you. He came and died and suffered so that you might have peace with God. Praise be to God for that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and spirit. Pray that you will drag it into our hearts and into our lives and change us because we know this truth now. In Jesus' name, amen.